Now this morning, I actually want to start in Isaiah 3. And that, of course, that's never a good sign when a preacher wants to start back in the Old Testament. But I want to start in Isaiah 3 before we go back to Luke 9. Isaiah 3, and I want to read to you the first eight verses. Um, What we're seeing here in Isaiah 3, let me give you a little preface, is we're seeing the judgment that is coming to Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel at the time. And we're seeing the judgment coming to them for their sin. Now there are many woes and judgments coming to Israel, but what I want you to notice is this one particular judgment as it's announced here in Isaiah 3. Let's read this together. Verse 1, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician and the expert in charms, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. And the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor. The youth will be insolent to the elder, and the despised to the honorable. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be a leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Now, what is the particular woe judgment that is spoken here in Isaiah 3? It's that the people of God will be leaderless and lacking. And the two often go together, as Isaiah points out. They will be lacking. It says that there will be no food, no water. And it says that they will be leaderless. They'll look around at all these different characters who typically bring leadership to the nation and they will be nowhere to be found. And in fact, the two things go together. Leadership and lacking. How can you be the leader of a nation if you don't have the resources to lead them? How can you provide for the nation if you don't have resources? How can you be the shepherd of God's people if you can't feed the sheep? So it will get so bad, he says, that they'll look around and they'll say to somebody, oh, well, hey, you there, still living at your dad's house. You have a suit. Why don't you be our leader? And he'll say, me? I can't be the leader. I don't even have food at my house, much less a suit. I can't be the leader. So the judgment Part of the judgment coming on Israel will be that they are leaderless and lacking. And this would all come to pass. Both kingdoms fall. The leadership 
fails and Israel falls and is exiled, is kicked out of the promised land. And all the judgment for their sin comes down on them in the exile. Now, fast forward 700 years to the time of Jesus. When Jesus arrives on the scene, the worst of the foretold woes has passed. They were in exile, but now they've returned to the promised land. But in many ways, when Jesus arrives on the scene, they're still not back. They're still in a tough spot. They are still suffering the lingering effects of these judgments. And in fact, one of the things they're still suffering from is that they're leaderless and lacking. Who is the king in Israel when Jesus arrives on the scene? Who is the rightful Davidic king? No one. They answer to Caesar. And his puppets. There's King Herod, but he's not a Davidic king. He's just one of the political players of the empire. And where are the riches, the abundance of the king? Days like when David was king and Solomon was king. And Solomon made silver as common as rocks. Well, those days had not returned. And the resources that Israel had were funneled through and controlled by the Roman Empire. They're paying taxes to Caesar. Herod directs the funds. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, they're still suffering from these effects of Isaiah 3. Leaderless and lacking. But now, there's a whisper of a Messiah. There's whispers that maybe the Messiah has come. Now what we need to remember is that that term is nearly synonymous with with kingship. It, It is in line with kingship. Now we quickly jump to savior, personal savior, but we need to hear it through biblical ears. We're talking about rumors of a king, which I didn't even know that's what we were talking about here, king's mission. That's perfect, right? We're talking about rumors of a king. Messiah, which in Greek is Christ, means the anointed one. It means the smeared one. And that was the term used to refer to the king. Uh, David often referred to King Saul as the Lord's anointed. So when we talk about rumors of the Messiah, we're talking about rumors of a king. Maybe this leaderless, lacking Israel, maybe the king has come. And the question that's now hovering in Israel in the first century is, could Jesus be the king? Could he be the king? Could he restore Leadership, 
to Israel? Could he restore the fortunes of Israel? And, and what I want you to hear is as we come to Luke 9, these questions aren't just academic or theological. There's a deep longing for the Messiah to come. And they're wondering. Their hopes, their families, their nation is hanging on this question. Could Jesus be the king? Now, by Luke 9, we know a lot about Jesus. We know he's a great teacher. You all have been journeying through Luke. We know that he's taught on ethics and the true good life. He's taught on the Sabbath. He teaches with a kind of authority the other religious leaders don't have. He, he's a great teacher. But could he be the king? We know that he's a great miracle worker. He's a great miracle. He's done many amazing miracles. He's healed the leper. He's uh, made the lame walk. He's raised the dead more than once. But there have been many teachers in Israel. There have been miracle workers in Israel. In fact, prophets of old had healed leprosy and raised the dead. Teachers, one thing. Prophets, one thing. Miracle workers, one thing. But could he be the king? That's the question swirling around his ministry right now. Could he be the king? Now, again, we've, we've got some words here and there in Luke so far that say, well, yeah, like that's who he's supposed to be. The angel comes to Mary early in Luke and says, he's going to inherit, your son is going to inherit the throne of David. And then we have Jesus doing things that speak of a great authority. He's, he's forgiving sins. Um, he's declaring himself Lord of the Sabbath. But at this point, these are all just words. I mean, you can say whatever. You can claim to be king. You can say an angel spoke to you. But the question is, is he? Could he be? Does he have what it takes? Could this be the one? Is he the Messiah? Could he restore Israel? Could he bring back their fortunes? Could he lead them? And that's where we find ourselves in Luke 9. In fact, just above the section that Sam read, we, we begin with this question. Herod's wondering, who is this Jesus? He's wondering... Is he a prophet, the prophet, John the Baptist returned to life, Elijah? What's going on? There's a question of his identity. And then Luke 9, 10 to 17, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, Sam's already read this for you, so I won't read it again, but what happens? We have this question, could he be the king? And what happens? Well, a great crowd finds Jesus, and they come to him, and he welcomes them and he teaches them about the kingdom and he heals their illnesses and then the day wears away it's late at night and the disciples say we're, we're far away from anywhere you should send them home let them eat and he says you feed them and so they gather a few little supplies have them sit down and Jesus blesses uh, the loaf and the fish and and a miracle happens he feeds about five thousand men And the question is, could he be the king? Could he be the one? 
Isaiah said, there's no one in Israel who could lead because Israel has lost its leaders. Israel has lost its resources. Who can be the shepherd of Israel if they can't feed the sheep? Isaiah has said, people will look around and say, well, you could be the leader, but the person will say, well, I can't be the leader. I don't have food. Jesus just fed 5,000 men. Could Jesus be the king? Could Jesus be the one? This miracle is supposed to give us the resounding answer. Yes! He could be the king. Does he have what it takes to lead the nation? Yes! He could be the king. Does he have the resources to shepherd God's people? Yes! He could be the king. And this miracle, as we progress through Luke, now moves us towards the kingship of Jesus. That not only is he a great teacher, not only is he a great miracle worker, but he could be the king. He could be the Messiah. He could be the one to come, the Lord's anointed. And the nature of this miracle and the scale of this miracle is meant to clarify that he could be the king. Now, so far in Luke, what we've been seeing is Jesus working at these individual levels. He's been changing lives one life at a time. He's been going around ministering, teaching. But here, as we move to the feeding of the 5,000, we move to something of a national scale. He fed 5,000 men. And the gospel writers all want to make sure that we get this. It's the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. They want to make sure that we heard about this one. Why? Because it's a big one. It's epic. It makes a different statement about who Jesus is. And so Mark says there were about 5,000 men. Luke says there were about 5,000 men. John says there were about 5,000 men. Did you hear? About 5,000 men. And then Matthew adds this great line. He says there are about 5,000 men, you know, besides the women and children. What? So, there are estimates that that there could very well be 20,000 people here. Do you see? He's sprung onto the national stage here. He's done something that's at a national level. He just miraculously fed maybe as many as 20,000 people. Now, at the time, Israel had about 500,000 to 600,000 people in the, in the area living in the nation. So that's 3 to 4% of the population. So to put that in perspective, that's 9 to 14 million in our country. If he fed 9 to 14 million, you might sit up straight. There are about 50,000 people, 55,000 people in Jerusalem on an average day at this time. He just fed maybe 20,000 people. Think about that. This has national implications. If somebody told you, hey, there's a guy down in Florida, uh, you know, great teacher, he, the, you know, miracles are happening from his incredible 
you might just shrug. In fact, we've had that. Like, we've heard of little revivals around the country. And they say, yeah, this guy is incredible. He's great. The Lord's working miracles. And we go, oh, okay, you know, maybe. But if somebody said, hey, there's a guy in Florida, and he's got 9 million people living at his compound, and he just, you know, he's, he's housing them and taking care of them, you'd say, what is going on? What, who is this guy? What's he up to? What, what are his plans? What, how rich is he? Where is this, where's this money coming from? Who is this guy? If there was half the population of New York City, outside of New York City, or outside of Washington, right? You'd sit up and go, what? whoa, what's the plan here? He's got 20,000 people outside of Jerusalem. There's 55,000 inside. This is a national level miracle. Something different is being said here about Jesus. Jesus could be the king. And this miracle is meant to clarify and confirm his kingship his kingliness, that he could be the Messiah. And there's other clues. We, we know that this is a confirmation of his leadership because of how the scene begins. It's the gospel of Mark in his account of this scene. It's Mark that says that when Jesus saw the crowd, he says he had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he welcomes them, he teaches them, he heals them, he feeds them as an expression of servant leadership for the people. He saw that they were like sheep with no leader, no one to care for them. And so all that he does is an expression of that loving leadership, his shepherding. And we know it's a confirmation of his leadership because of how the crowds respond. In John's gospel account of this, John says that after this miracle, the crowds wanted to make Jesus king. They get it. They look at this miracle and say, this guy could lead us. This could be the answer. He could be the one. He could be the king. And they want to make him king after this miracle. And we know this is a confirmation of his leadership because of the way Luke frames it. Luke wants us to see that. It starts with Herod asking, right before this, uh, asking, okay, who is this Jesus? Some say John, some say Elijah. Who is this Jesus? And then Luke ends it with the question of, well, who is Jesus? Now, I'm not sure who's preaching next week, and I'm, is it you? Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get into verse 18 a little bit, but uh All right, uh, we're good. Okay, but we get to, to Jesus saying, okay, the crowds, who do the crowds say I am? They say, well, you, maybe a prophet, maybe this. Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, which means you're the king. How do we go from Herod, who are you, to Peter, you're the king? Feeding of the 5,000. You're the king. You could be the king. So, who is Jesus? Could he be the one? This miracle shouts from the rooftops, yes, yes. He could be the king. He is able. He could lead Israel. Well, we've been flying at the 30,000-foot the level. 
looking at where this story fits into the larger story. But I don't want to miss what's happening on the ground. So I do, I do want to like come in for a low flyby here through this story. And I, I want to ask now, so if he, if he could be the king, is that, if that's what we're seeing in this miracle, well, well, what kind of king would he be like? You know, because it's only good news that he's the king, that he could be the king if he's a good king. So what kind of king would he be like? And we see some clues here from this story what kind of king he would be. We see that he would be the kind king. Jesus would be the kind king. We see this in the context of the reception of this crowd. You know, the context of this miracle is actually exhaustion and grief. Now, I'm pulling from the, uh, the different accounts here, but if we were to read the different accounts, we'd find in one that the reason they had retreated to this desolate place was why? Because he just sent out the disciples on uh, a mission trip, which we see that here in Luke as well, but it explicitly says, let's draw a way that you might rest. Right? They're tired. They've been on a mission trip. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip. You come back a, 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 little, a little frazzled, a little worn out. Uh, I, I know we used to take these wonderful student retreats and you have a blast, uh, but by Sunday night, you know, pretty fragile. You know, it's a lot of doings. Um, they're, they're worn out, you know. They're, they're at their wits end. They're, they're tired. And Jesus welcomes the crowd. He sees them and he has compassion on them. And it's a moment of grief. We're told in another gospel account that that part of the timing here, part of the reason they're retreating is also that Jesus has recently learned of the death of John the Baptist. And so he says, I, 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 gotta, I gotta get away for a minute. But the crowds find him. They follow him. This massive crowd shows up. And it says he has compassion on them. In the exhaustion and in the grief, he welcomes them. Does the king say, I'm retiring to my chambers? No. Does the king say, see my secretary, I'll talk to you on Monday? No. He's the kind king who welcomes the crowd in their sin and in their shame and in their brokenness, and he teaches them. He tells them the good news about the kingdom, and he heals them of their diseases, and he feeds them. He is the kind king. I don't know what you thought you would find if you came to a king, if you came to Jesus, but what you would find is a kind, welcoming king. Jesus is the kind king. What kind of king would Jesus be? Well, we also see he would be the abundant king. He would be the abundant king. Remember we said there could be as many as 20,000 people here. No matter where you land in that scope, there's a lot of people here. And there's this remarkable statement made in verse 17. Look, look at verse 17. What does it say? And they all made it work. No, that's not what it says. All right, what does it say in verse 17? And they all had a little. Oh, wait, that's not quite right. Hold on. 
It says, and they all got a taste. Now, what does it say in verse 17? And they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus didn't just like put together some lame meal. He he didn't pass around appetizers. He fed them. He has the resources. He fed them. They were satisfied. People said, oh, no, I'm good. You want more? No. Good. Satisfied. So much so that there's 12 baskets of leftovers. And of course, everyone reading this says, boy, you can't help but see some kind of significance in the 12, right? 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. It sure seems like we're supposed to pick up on enough for everyone. There's a sense of completion, enough for the nation. And there's this hinge into the 12 apostles, enough for the church. There's enough, plenty. There's abundance for every tribe, every nation. There's enough. Jesus would be the abundant king. And so if you ask, does he, does he have enough for me? Yes. Well, would he have enough for my family? Yes. Is he able, does he have enough for my business? Yes. Does he have enough for fellowship and West Park and Grace Lutheran and Emmanuel Church? Yes. Can he accomplish this work and that work? Yes. Can ministries thrive in all directions? Yes. We probably don't dream big enough. He has enough. He's abundant. He has all that we need and more. He is the abundant king. And what kind of king would he be? He would be the delegating king. Now, I'm going to cheat here a little bit because we at Emmanuel also preached through Luke uh, a couple years ago and uh, are now into Luke's second book, the book of Acts, and we're about coming up on nine chapters in Acts. So I know how it ends. I've started to read the sequel. Um, <laughs> but what happens is when you get back in Luke 9, and this is actually a lot of fun looking at Luke 9 now, having gone through the end into Acts, you realize that some of the details that seem trivial in Luke 9 aren't trivial. And you realize that some of the things that seem like incidental to the story aren't incidental. That they're actually threads. And, and this right here, uh, what seems like an incidental detail that he says, well, you feed them and, and you organize them, you pass it out. That seems like, well, I don't know, that's some detail of the story, I guess. No, that actually ends up being a bedrock principle. He's a delegating king. He delegates his authority. And you'll see as the story progresses and as we get into to the church age and Acts, you'll see just how much he works through his church. In fact, the two are so close, they're, they're almost synonymous at times. There'll be a scene in Acts where a, a couple lies about how much money they donated to the church, and uh, Peter will say, you know, you didn't lie to men, you lied to God. Now, on the surface, it's all happening uh, in the church, but he's saying, don't, don't you see what you've done? As you've lied to the church, you, you're lying to God. That, that's how closely they're, they're related. They're not the same, but they're so closely related. And, and the Lord will appear to Saul, remember, on his conversion, and say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he'll say, what are you talking about? I'm not persecuting you, Lord. So you're persecuting my church. Right? So closely aligned are they. He's the delegating king. So he's working through the apostles here. He's working through his disciples. And think about that. 
your experience of the miracle may have been Peter standing in front of you, handing you some bread. That might have been your experience of the miracle. And we say sometimes, oh, I, I, I want to see the Lord at work in my life. I'm, I'm wanting to see, you know, I came here to see Jesus. And you don't realize that it's Jesus through Peter standing in front of you. And what Jesus wants to do in your life, he's doing through that brother or sister in front of you. Recently, I was talking with someone, uh, me and another uh, member at Emmanuel had gone to, to talk with somebody, and, and the person just commented that, I, I just, I don't see God's hand in my life, and, you know, I'm struggling to see him. And we kind of gently, you know, you kind of look around and go, I mean, we're here, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I think the Lord is mindful of you, right? I mean, I know we're not perfect by any means, but, but I think the Lord could be working through us, and that's often how the Lord works. This is not incidental. This is not a trivial detail. This is how he will delegate his kingship. He will share that authority. And I don't know how you view church, if you view it more as like a gym membership, kind of a voluntary association that has no real authority in your life, but it's possible that if you view church in that way, you actually might be missing what God is doing in your life right in front of you. Just as Peter might have been standing right in front of you, said, no, 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 I came to see Jesus. And you don't realize that Peter is standing there in Jesus' name. So Jesus is the delegating king. So as we step back from Luke 9, we conclude that Jesus could be the king. He could lead Israel. He could very well be the shepherd of Israel. He could be the one. Now we've seen what kind of king he would be. He would be a kind king, an abundant king, and a delegating king. And, and we could end right here and just call it good. But there is a twist. There is a twist. Now I mentioned to you that in John's account, the people come to Jesus and they want to make him king. And it says that he retreats again. Why? Why? Like, didn't he come to be the king? Didn't we learn that, in fact, he is the king? I mean, in hindsight, we now know, yes, he is the king. Why is he retreating now from the moment they get it and they say, he, you're the king? And then again, to, to pick on Sam's passage next week, he'll tell the disciples, don't tell anybody. You're the Christ, shh, don't tell anybody. Why? Because there's something about his kingship they couldn't understand. Not yet, anyway. He would be the suffering king. And his path to coronation would be the road to Calvary. And his strength would look like weakness, and his wisdom would look like foolishness, and his victory would look like defeat. And they didn't understand that. But there would be one more twist. 
they would take his body and lay it in a tomb. And they would remark to each other, you know, we, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But I guess he's another failed Messiah. Another would-be king that didn't work out. Until the third day. Until that first Easter. Until that bright Sunday morning. And they would see the resurrected Jesus. And they would know something that was beyond their imagination. That in his resurrection, in his defeat of sin, in his conquering of Satan, in his vanquishing of death, that not only was he the king of Israel, but he was the divine king of the universe. Jesus is the divine king of the universe. And this morning, you must understand that it's not just that Jesus could be the king. It's not just that he was the king of Israel, but that he is the divine king of the universe. And he will suffer no rivals. And he must be king over your heart. And he must be king over your family. And he must be king over your career and your ambitions. And he must be king over West Park. And he must be king over Emmanuel. He must be first. We must always, everywhere we go, first pledge allegiance to King Jesus. He is the king. But the good news is, he's a good king. He's a kind king. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Mephibosheth. That's hard to say. Say that three times fast. Mephibosheth is the grandson of King Saul, the failed king of Israel. And Mephibosheth's life has been a disaster. It's, it's been tragic. What happened to Mephibosheth is when Saul dies and his dad, Jonathan, dies, he flees. His nurse takes him and they flee. Why do you flee? Because what do you do with the heirs to the throne when the king is dethroned? What do you do? You kill him. So they take off running. And he, in the haste, somehow he's injured. And he's crippled forever. And he lives in hiding. The, 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 the forsaken grandson of King Saul. And he lives in obscurity. But then one day, the dreaded call comes. The new king, King David, has found him. And he wants him to report to, to the king. And you can imagine Mephibosheth, the fear, the dread, his sorry life now surely coming to an end. And he's brought before the new king David, and he falls on his face, and he says, I'm your servant. But what Mephibosheth didn't know is that all along, David had sought him to show him kindness. And he said to Mephibosheth, don't be afraid. I want you to be with me always. 
And I want you to share in my kingdom. And I want you to sit at my table and eat with me always. And friends, we're glimpsing in that the heart of Jesus, the heart of King Jesus. That is his desire for you. He sought you. He's claimed his throne that he might do good to you. And I hope this morning that you will submit yourself to that king. I hope you'll submit your family to King Jesus. I hope you'll submit your fears to King Jesus. I hope you'll submit this nation to King Jesus. Because what you'll find is that those who humble themselves will be exalted. And those who call out for mercy will go home justified. And those who call on the name of King Jesus will be saved. So don't delay. Come to the King. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the King. Lord, we've sought after so many different leaders and sources of significance. We're looking for the way. We're looking for ultimate answers. But you are the true king, the true ruler of this universe. You are the true teacher and guide. You are the all in all. And so we thank you for this truth, that you've not hidden it from us, but that you've declared your kingship to us, both in the feeding of the 5,000 and in the and in your resurrection from the dead. Lord, we thank you that you offer us now with the authority of the king of the universe, pardon. The only pardon that is real, the only pardon that matters, the only pardon that is effective, and you offer it freely to whomever asks. So King Jesus, our kind king, we ask for that pardon. Lord, would you use us Could we be servants in your kingdom? Lord, redeem our lives. May we be with you always. May we be a part of what you're doing in this world. And I pray, Lord, blessings on West Park. I pray that you continue to expand your kingdom through the work here and the people here, the leaders here. Oh, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven here at West Park. And may many hear the good news of the kind King, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.